Hey everyone, this is Matt, producer of the Hayek Program Podcast. If you've ever wondered to yourself, gosh, when is the Hayek Program Podcast going to have some merchandise available? Well, now we do. If you go to www.mercatusmerch.com, you'll find Mercatus's new podcast merchandise store, where the Hayek Program Podcast has a tote bag, a mug, and a water bottle available for purchase. It's just in time for the holidays too, so you can go grab one for yourself, a friend, or a family member. And for our listeners, if you use the promo code Hayek at checkout, you'll get 10% off your purchase. Once again, that's www.mercatusmerch.com and use the promo code Hayek to save 10% at checkout. And as always, we'd love to have you share the latest episode with those in your orbit. Word of mouth is the primary way we grow the podcast, and we are always eager to keep the conversation going with other lifelong learners. Thank you so much for being a great audience. And with that, let's get to the episode. You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, uh, today is December 8th, uh, 2022, and I'm here with uh, my colleague uh, Chris Coyne uh, at the F.A. Hayek uh, Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for speaking with me, Pete. Yeah, we're here today to talk about Chris's uh, new book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, um, which is just out with Independent Institute. Uh, Chris, uh, before I start asking questions, can you explain a little bit about where that title comes from? Because I think that's fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for for speaking with me again. And and the um, title, of course, comes from the famous speech that John Quincy Adams gave in... um, I think it was 1820, either 1820 or 1821. At this time, he would have been Secretary of State, I guess, um, before he was president. And uh, it was to Congress. And he, what he said in that that ta- that speech, among other things, is that uh, America does not go in, in search of monsters to destroy, but more importantly is the reason why. Yeah. And the reason why is that, in his view, if the United States did that, which by he meant a, a very proactive militaristic foreign policy, it would undermine American values. So so he talks about America losing her spirit and yeah. what makes what makes the American project unique. Uh, I think so, that that aspect of the American project is something I want to maybe talk to you a little bit about, actually, when we get to the end. But it does seem if you draw a line between Washington's farewell address and that speech by by John Quincy Adams, that there was a very strong belief among the founders in a principled non-interventionism in terms of military affairs. Um, at least that was the rhetoric that was adopted, correct? Um, oh, certainly, certainly. And of course, in, in practice, 
you know, like a lot of things, there there's rhetoric, and then in practice, often there's violations of that. So it, it certainly wasn't perfect, and you have westward expansion and and all that kind of stuff, and uh, oftentimes relying on illiberal means. But nonetheless, I still think it's it's safe to say that that spirit, that 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 anti-militaristic spirit, certainly animated many of the key figures in American history, early on at least. Yeah. All right, so let me just start with, because uh, you have developed a very strong research program in the field of defense and peace economics. Um, I guess I would argue that's your main area of research that you've devoted your career to. Um, I think this is, is this correct. It's your fifth book in that, or sixth book, maybe? Fifth book? Or yeah, something? yeah. yeah fifth, fifth, fifth authored book and then yeah. a bunch of monographs and edited books. Yeah. I, I, w- I would say defense and peace, but but through the lens of mainline economics is how yeah. I would put it. Yeah. And um, and so you were in graduate school. You began graduate school in 2001. And so as anyone who just heard that date can realize is that 9-11 happens, what, second week you're in graduate school or something like that. But you had also come from the New York, New Jersey area, worked in New York City uh, prior to, to coming down here. Um, how did that impact you? And did that send you off in this direction of working on those issues or was it something that happened subsequently? No, it actually, it was, it was that set the stage for everything in an interesting way, which is, so as you mentioned, I I came from New York city to Fairfax, Virginia for graduate school. And when I was in New York city, I had been commuting. I worked on the, uh, in the wall street area. So I would, I would commute from Hoboken, New Jersey on the, on the path train into the basement underneath the World Trade Centers and then walk to Wall Street. Um, And so I just come from there. uh, And then, like you said, the third week of graduate school, I guess second or third week is when 9-11 attacks happen. And then soon thereafter, the United States government uh, invades Afghanistan, then Iraq, uh, and of course, unleashes the what what is broadly understood to be the war on terror. Uh, And so that was all happening. But it was, you know, a lot like a lot of people's research and careers in general, there's, there's an element of luck and randomness. And so I was, I was Tyler Cowan's research assistant in graduate school. I was in his office just chatting with him uh, around this time. And uh, we were just talking about how, um, you know, or I mentioned to him that, oh, look, you know, all this stuff with the occupation, no one's talking about things like what kind of knowledge would you have to know to turn Afghanistan into you know, a liberal democracy and what incentives are, are all these bureaucrats and all the regional actors and international organizations facing. And he said, oh, that's a that's interesting. We should work on a paper on that. And so um, he and I caught their paper over the next year on that, on, on nation building, which turned into my dissertation. But then the other aspect that I think was important during my first year is I, I had the chance to meet again through pure serendipity, uh, Bob Higgs. Um, during the second semester of my first year. And then, um, so I started reading a lot of his work in more detail and, and the combination of all this coming together um, led to my dissertation, um, which was on nation building and then subsequent work leading up to to this book. Yeah, I mean, it's a, um, you know, it's, it seems obvious that an economist tools of wanting to study structure of incentives and the flow and quality of the knowledge that's generated would be an obvious thing to bring to this field because you know you're 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 trying to orchestrate a society 
right? And it's through political means. Now, the military aspects of it are the chosen means that they're doing, but it's still studying collective choice with all the stuff. And behind you there on your shelf is the collected works of Jim Buchanan. And so you have Gordon Tullock and Jim Buchanan as tools, and you have Hayek and Mises as tools to be able to address these issues. And it seems like um, it should be an obvious uh, combination. But in the literature itself, you're pretty much a unique bird in that regard. I mean, if you look at earlier Austrians, Robbins wrote about war, Morgenstern, Hobbler, they all wrote about war. Mises, to some extent, writes about war. Hayek, not so much, right? Uh, Buchanan, Tulloch. But are there other public choice scholars and other Austrian scholars that um, you were influenced by at all that um, impacted the way your research evolved? No, I mean, I've influ- I was influenced by most of the people you just listed, but, but you're right to say that there's not much in terms of a systematic study of conflict and war. Uh, Mises, of course, talks, talks a bunch about the, the role of economic calculation in the war economy, um, which, which I've drawn upon heavily, but nothing in terms of either the operation of the military sector itself or foreign interventions. Um, and so from that standpoint, that's kind of the entry point. And of course, scholars outside of economics have emphasized different parts of this uh, using a different analytical framework. So anthropologists point out, you know, the local context specific nature of social systems and social organizations and the related knowledge, but they're not talking about it in the same way that Hayek is, for instance, or, or Mises, and certainly not in the, in the realm of bureaucracy and trying to intervene upon people and so on. What's the main paradigmatic framework of people in defense and peace economics? Is it is it sort of military Keynesianism? I mean, what is what is your so, main paradigm you're wrestling with when you're making contributions in that literature? Yeah, so it, it's a it, it's first of all, it's a very small field. I mean, that's the and part of that is because I think it gets mixed in with other fields, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. But in, in what I would call defense and peace economics, I think neo the neoclassical paradigm is still the the main one. So it's a very allocation what Buchanan would call an allocation based paradigm where you have some social welfare function, you have the assumption of a benevolent government, and then it's a, you know, how do we allocate resources? But the reason it gets mixed in is because very quickly then you move into the realm of macroeconomics. That's the guns and butter trade-off kind of at the aggregate level. That's issues of military Keynesianism and things like the multiplier effect um, and, you know, the ability of military spending to not just provide defense, but also to stimulate economic activity, create jobs, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, there's it, it, parts of it are mixed in with things like what we what we would call development economics, because because conflict, of course, falls under the purview there. Um, so those are, and, and you know, then there's niches. So it, there are a small group of scholars in defense and peace economics who are more Marxist uh, in their in their orientation, uh, and. Um, what I've tried to bring to it is the is the aforementioned thinker. This is why I was emphasizing before the mainline aspect. And so the role of institutions, the role of epistemics, the role of incentives, but always keeping in mind the Buchanan point that ultimately this is people populating different organizational structures and those organizational structures 
create different epistemic and incentive outcomes. And so variation takes place across institutions and, and our tools allow us to analyze this. And so you've heard me say this, and I, I, I think it's a quite powerful entry point in Buchanan's 1949 paper where he talks about the fiscal brain. I've talked about the defense brain, which is a very similar type logic. You can think of the defense brain as one subset of the fiscal brain, which ca which captures all of, of the state's activities. And rather than assuming optimal extraction of resources from the private sector, whether it's taxation, debt, printing of money in order to finance its operations, and then spitting out a portfolio of, of, of outputs that maximizes social welfare, those are all things that need to be demonstrated and analyzed. Yeah. I think one of the real strengths is that normally when we think about like, uh, you know, so uh, go to fiction for a second. When Orwell writes in 1984, part of the reason why Ingsoc always has to be war at war with one of the other, you know, aspects in the world is because then they transform an economic problem into a technological problem. You just need to win the war. And so there's a sort of a logic of why you would have a defense brain in a way that it doesn't make sense to have a fiscal brain. But one of the things I think your work shows out is that the defense brain still faces the same economic problems of not just, it's not just a technological problem because they still are dealing with how it is that they impose their will on a pluralistic society, a multidimensional society and everything like that. Like think about like going into Afghanistan or going into Iran, uh, Iraq and, and figuring out how the hell to actually coordinate activity in there with all the various different aspects of the society. <clears throat> and so as a result, the, the easy idea of a technological problem substituting for an economic problem fades very quickly in the morass of the problem that they have to deal with. I mean, that's in some sense what I think of with you're doing bad by doing good, where you even point out that, you know, how here's a task, deliver bottles of water, right? And they still somehow, you know, don't don't get it right or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, the this way of thinking, I think, opens up a multitude of doors. So you have the stuff uh, over there, if you will, the, the society's being intervened upon. That's the nation building type stuff. That's the aid delivery type stuff. But then you can start thinking about the domestic effects. And of course, these things are, are, are entwined. But then what are those domestic effects? Well, one of them is what we were just talking about a moment ago in terms of effects on domestic economic activity, for, for, for better or for worse. But then, of course, there's also the broader effects on kind of the, 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 the fabric, if you will, of domestic life, whether it's the social fabric, the, the political fabric in terms of things like rights and liberties. And what that gets you thinking, well, what if it's the case that a, a, a apparatus that is liberal in its intentions actually has the opposite effect both abroad and or domestically. And one of the things that, that many of the thinkers that, that you and I admire intellectually, one of the things I notice that they, they oftentimes do is they leave that unanalyzed. And so they do talk about things like the formation of, of government and the, the role of constitutions, but oftentimes they, they leave in the background both the certain functions for the state, one of them typically being defense, but also then the potential of those activities to affect the very nature of the constitution itself and other domestic institutions. And so it really opens up the door to, I think, uh, a number of, of important questions, but I think really interesting ones as well. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think 
this is a broader point and we'll get to it at the end, but I think one of the things that's most fascinating about your work is actually the implications for the broader theory of public goods theory with the quintessential public good being public safety at some level. And yet, how is it that the states deliver it and, and whatnot? But let's put that off for a second. Let me get back to your book. In Search of Monsters is more than an indictment of military adventurism. So it's not just that you're highlighting examples where the U.S. is you know, going out and engaging in military adventurism. Um, but before we can go on, can you give listeners like just some convey conveying some extent the extent of U.S. military presence in the world today? Like, you know, we don't think of ourselves as an empire in the same way that, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire or whatever. But when we start thinking about where it is that we have bases and troops and 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 all these things like that, it turns out that so just some sense of the the magnitude of of our involvement in the world. Yeah, sure. And so it is a unique empire, by the way. And and I should note, and I talk about this, it's in a footnote in the book, there is an academic debate mainly among like political theorists and political science, I guess more broadly, about what, what constitutes an empire. Um, and so the U.S. is unique in that it's not, at least in its current manifestation, um, out for conquest in order to secure new geographic territory. But that said, it certainly broadcasts its and projects its power over the entire globe in, in, in many ways and, and influences a variety of satellite states in a variety of ways that in order to pursue the goals of those who control the levers of power. And so in the book, what I do is I in the in the opening chapter, I try to provide a, a brief overview of kind of the evolution of American empire without doing full justice to the history. But I, I kind of split into three phases. You know, phase one is kind of continental expansion. So we're, we're looking at westward expansion and things like the Louisiana Purchase, the Florida Purchase, and then the move out west. And, and that really goes up until the late, I guess, 1800s. And phase two is the Spanish-American War, which is, is 1898. And then the other big thing there is um, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, 1904. And um, the, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, which was 1823, basically said, like, look, European powers, you, know, you have your stuff set up um, and, and, uh, uh, in, in the Caribbean. We won't mess with that, but don't come over here anymore and establish new colonies, and we'll, we'll we won't meddle in your affairs. And if you do come over and start establishing stuff, we're going to view it as a threat. The, the The Roosevelt corollary built on that and basically said if if those countries in the south of of of, of America were viewed as dysfunctional or unable to fulfill functions, then a civilized country, meaning America, had the right to intervene. Now, why do I say that? Because Think about a lot of arguments now about weak and failed states as a very similar type logic. Okay, so then you get phase three, which leads up to your point about the the magnitude of all this, and that's really uh, uh, World War II. And and even before World War II, there had been plans put in place to expand the role of America into the global space to become a, a, the world's police. Uh, but certainly in the wake of World War II, uh, uh, the U.S. government evolved in a way where those that were kind of in control of, of the national security state viewed their role as being the world's police. And so what does that include today? Like what are the contours of America, American empire? Well, the way I break it down 
is it, it is both domestic and international. So domestically, you have a national security state. That national security state is enormous. So that that is what in- includes what historians call the imperial presidency, which refers to the fact that that through time the executive branch has uh, gained increasing and expanding powers that have. Uh, move beyond what uh, many interpret to be within the constitutional confines of of the president or the executive's powers. But it also includes a lot of government agencies and what many people oftentimes refer to as the deep state. Um, Now, a lot of people kind of hesitate with that terminology because they think it sounds conspiratorial. But to my way of thinking, it's just the logic of of bureaucracy, which is if you're going to do all this stuff, you need someone to carry it out. That's government agencies. Those government agencies are are populated by uh, a significant number of people that are not subject to direct electoral accountability. So they're appointed either by other bureaucrats or by elected officials. And it's so large that it is impossible to uh, understand it. Uh, And several years ago, uh, well, now it's like a decade ago, two Washington Post journalists, Dana Priest and William Arkin, did an investigative journalist study. They published a book called Top Secret America. This is in the wake of 9-11. And in the wake of 9-11, the security state just exploded because in addition to all the normal apparatus that was already in place, you had all these private contracts. And they tried to just map out like who actually has security clearance. And it was too complicated to do. Uh, And so you have this massive national security state domestically. You have a a permanent war complex. Uh, So the the U.S. government uh, invests well over a trillion dollars a year in military operations. That's domestic and abroad, of course. But that has significant uh, uh, economic effects at home. Uh, and and I, I'll just say this because I don't want to spend too long on this. We tend to think like a, a, of the top military contractors, Boeing, Lockheed, all those. And that's good. That's important to think about that to understand it. But when you start looking at the top 100 to 200 military contractors, you realize how pervasive the military sector is because it's not just the bomb makers and the arms makers. You need accountants, you need IT firms, you need office supplies. And so you realize that kind of like what we consider to be these mundane economic actors, like, oh, there's uh, you know staples or something like that. Like that has nothing to do with the military sector. Well, they do get contracts or, or in that industry. And so you realize how pervasive it is. And then labor markets, of course, the Pentagon's the largest employer uh, in America. Uh, and so you have all these distortions there. Then you start moving abroad and you start thinking, okay, about military installations. And depending on who you ask, somewhere in the range of four to 800 military bases around the world, which I realize is a broad range, but that's because uh, the, the government, the American government is quite unclear and inconsistent in how they count these things. So four to 800 uh, bases around the world. Uh, uh, special operations. These are small one-off operations. Uh, In any given year, certainly since 9-11, special ops forces intervene somewhere in the range of 60 to 80% of the world's countries. Now, some of those are very small. They can be training missions, but still the the global presence is is everywhere. Uh, And then you you turn to things like arms sales and uh, uh, other kind of tools of war uh, and the U.S. government's the largest arms dealer uh, in the world. It constitutes uh, uh, over a third of the global market of arms. Now, some of those go to developed governments that perhaps don't abuse them, even though oftentimes they do abroad when they're actually engaged in war. But many of them go to brutal regimes. And so the Saudi 
regime, for instance, is a significant recipient of American arms. And so you take all this together, you take the domestic effects, you take the international effects. And even when you don't have military bases, by the way, there's still other things going on. So for instance, the US government often partners with countries to launch drones out of their countries, their their military bases for use abroad. You have black sites um, that were used to uh, for the extrajudicial kidnapping and torture of people during nine, uh, post 9-11. And those things don't show up. It's not like there's an accounting of them because they're, there's a reason they're called black sites because they're supposed to be secret. And so uh, I think it's safe to assume that the United States government has a presence around the globe, both seen and unseen, and it's massive, and it's massive. And then the debate becomes, well, what are the effects of that? And the fascinating thing for, for, for us to think about, given our interests, I think, is this issue of, of public goods and public bads and all that that incorporates. But even among traditionally liberal thinkers, there's lots of debate about this. So there's people that advocate for American empire and British empire prior, precisely because they think that you need someone to provide these global public goods. Others, myself included, are more skeptical of that position. Yeah. So you've already sort of started to answer my second question out of that, which is uh, basically, uh, can you discuss why this expansion contradicts liberal principles? Because one of the the shocking things, of course, is that when you look at Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's statement, um, it aligns very easily with stuff that Bill Easterly has talked about in a new book he's working on called Saviors and Skeptics, where the uh, the um, intervening liberal powers believe that they can justify their liberal interventionism on the grounds that they're saviors of the population that they're entering into because somehow that population was either uh, unprepared to lead correctly, to get to peace and prosperity, or they underutilize. And so we're going to go in and intervene. They don't tend to say, I'm going to intervene to conquest anymore. They say, I'm going in to bring peace and prosperity to these people at the barrel of a gun. And then there's skeptics. The skeptics would be from Adam Smith to Chris Coyne, right, who who raise these kind of uh, issues. But it's amazing to me the amount of effort that's put into trying to square expansion of this influence with regard to liberal principles, right? So rather than saying, I'm not a liberal, I don't pretend to be a liberal, I pretend to be a strong gun, right? What was what what was his uh, Teddy Roosevelt's thing? I mean, he's not a liberal; he's a big stick, big stick, stick, right? But but we tend not to say that anymore, right? We we say we're bringing democracy and freedom, and we're a beacon of light to the world, and all these things like that. So, can you you know? I mean, I, I I know that this book isn't the only book in which you've mentioned this because your book on uh you know, tyranny comes home is also about this boomerang effect. We intervene and it brings back these, what you were just talking about, these these effects on our domestic liberties as well. That's also seen in your, your uh, manufacturing militarism book as well. Um, these impacts on our own, own society. But why is it that we can't have liberal empire? 
Like, why is there? It's it's like a is it an oxymoron to say those two phrases together? I I argue it is. In the in the current book, I say it's it it makes no sense um, logically or or in practice. And the reason why. So first of all, liberalism here. Of course, we're talking the classic sense. So so if we think about things like Mises's book, liberalism, Deirdre McCloskey, or your own book, struggle for a better world. What is it that we're talking about when we talk about liberalism? Well, as, as, as Mises puts it, it's the philosophy of individual freedom. Um, so so it's, a, it's, a, it's the theoretical framing of a society that consists of entirely free people. Now we got to flesh out what that means, of course. So then, so then what are the liberal values? Well, there's no you know, single list, but if you think about what the kind of classics are that you see across treatments of this, it's things like primacy of individual freedom, um, a very deep commitment and respect to human dignity, intellectual humility, an appreciation of, of, of freedom of association and voluntary choice, uh, freedom of expression, um, toleration, cosmopolitanism, spontaneous order, and a commitment to peaceful resolution of interpersonal conflict. Uh, now, again, people could debate in either excluding some of those or, or including more things, but I think that gives a sense. The reason uh, uh, the idea of liberal empire is problematic for my way of thinking is to think about what empire requires. And it requires a couple things at its core. It requires, first of all, a, a, a massive government apparatus. I mean, the word empire, the reason it's powerful is precisely because it captures a very large apparatus. So Again, for the proponents of people to talk about limited government, but then empire, I think there's a tension there, which is, it's unclear to me that you can, that that's, if that's your definition of limited, it's a very, very elastic definition. But uh, the other thing is, is the nature of empire's activities is to, the very purpose of it, as, as you pointed out for the proponents, is to, for, for liberal empire, is to spread liberal values. And again, it's not crazy what they're saying. You can see why they're saying it, like, if, if those liberal values are good, then things that promote those values can be good. And what the, so what they're trying to do is bring about peace, prosperity, as you put it. But their other framing of the world, I think, oftentimes is a very Hobbesian view of the world, which is that if, if we don't have, we're going to have Leviathan. And so we can have a liberal Leviathan or an illiberal Leviathan. And they're both do bad stuff, but all else constant, given that I'd prefer the liberal to the illiberal. We can come back to that later and talk more about it. But intervening on other human beings ultimately requires force or the threat thereof. And and I use force here in a very broad sense, tools of social control. You need to be able to monitor, surveil, uh, punish, imprison, uh, torture, and kill human beings that do not comport with your desires. So you intervene upon people. The minute you intervene, whether domestically or internationally, or when, once a political body intervenes, it means by definition they're unhappy with the status quo, or there'd be no urge to intervene in the first place. So you intervene. You can ask someone, like, please change your behavior and do it. And they might voluntarily comply, in which case there's no point for empire at all anyway. But if they don't, then you have a choice. You can back off or you can force it. You can raise the cost of, of, of people defecting from your dictates. But what does that require? It requires violations of self-determination. It requires violations of individual freedom. Now, again, the, the pushback or, or the response might be, well, it's for the greater good. But notice that violates liberalism too, because it's, it's, it is collectivism writ large, which is oftentimes how these conversations go. 
the American empire is going to do X, Y, and Z. And typically, if you say, well, where are they going to do it? They'll talk about either a, a country or a society in the aggregate as if one one very highly aggregated entity acts upon another and can act upon it. There's no individualism in that model. There's no individualism, whether it is analyzing the decision makers themselves and the process through which it occurs. That's the defense brain logic. But there's also no individualism from the perspective of liberal values. Uh, and to the extent there, there are, it's always an outcome of the act. We need to do X, Y, and Z in order to get liberalism, in order to get peace. But what that neglects is, you know, well, what happens if you have to kill and maim people in order to get liberalism? Have you really gotten liberalism? Well, you might get it, but, you know. Uh, and then so that, that's, that, I think, is kind of where the debate comes down and, and why I think the idea itself is problematic, the idea of liberal empire. And, and in the book, I, I argue that it's actually even more problematic because it does great harm, to my way of thinking, to those very values. Because it, it, it justifies a range of activities that are inherently illiberal, and it justifies them on liberal grounds, which does great damage to those principles, both in their conceptual form, but in their practical form. If, if you live in a society and someone is intervening upon you and they're inter intervening upon you in the name of freedom. So, you know, I have a chapter in the book on the Afghan drug war. So, so a lot of ordinary Afghan citizens were, were, were farmers of poppy. They weren't like drug lord kingpins, just ordinary people who are by Western standards, extremely poor, trying to feed themselves and their families. Now, imagine you're doing that. That's your life. And an alien occupier comes in and they say freedom, but then they destroy your entire livelihood. What do you associate America with? What do you associate American values with? What do you associate th those that rhetoric of liberalism with? Presumably illiberal acts. The same way, you know, we, we, you, myself, you know, you and I are both from the New York area, New York City area, and, and Americans in general. I mean, think about how people felt when America was attacked on 9-11. And that, that is not to, that's not, by the way, to make an argument about moral equivalency. It's to try to empathize with how other people might feel when you intervene upon them, even if your intentions are benevolent and, and, and noble in cause. Yeah. So you and I are involved in this thing called the Don LaVoy Fellowship. And as a result of that, we've been spending a lot of time talking about Don's uh, work, in particular, national economic planning, what is left. And the chapter, chapter seven in his book, uh, what surprises me is that that was written in 1985. And yet to me, it seems so fresh for the world that we live in today. And part of it is because Lavoy makes us think about the contradictory narrative that uh, played out in that early history that you're talking about. So when you mention westward expansion, Westward expansion, yes, of course, and, but it happened with tremendous violence on the Native American population. And in many narratives, we just don't, we talk about, oh, the entrepreneurial, the westward spirit, you know. Manifest freedom. destiny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> freedom and all these things like that. And we forget like what that, you know, was built upon. And reckoning with that is a major part of, of reckoning with what a true liberal society would look like. Um, so I'm going to skip a question and then go back, which is given what you were just talking about, um, 
do you see any legitimate exceptions to the principle um, at all? Let's say, you know, like, I'm sure you've heard this already, you know, um, you know, you're giving a talk about principled non-interventionism and then someone stands up and says, oh, well, you know, Hitler <laughs> or, you know, they just mention a name, right? Uh, uh, you know, today it would be Putin or whatever. They would just mention a name. Do you see any um, exceptions to the principle or once we make an exception, there's no stopping principle? Is that, yeah. I think it's a, com so I guess conceptually you could think about exceptions to the, the general principle, but I think in practice, the bar has to be so enormously high that there's very few. And the reason why is number one, it's, it's the criteria for sorting what is, is legit and what's not. And so these discussions typically, you know, take place in, in hindsight. So you look back and say, you know, you pick something bad and say, well, what would you do about that? And I, I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know. I, I don't know in every single situation, but no one does, by the way. Uh, and, and you can see this right now for anyone paying attention. Just go look at, or if you've just been following casually the, the, the Russian-Ukraine war, think about the experts, and people can't see, but I'm doing scare quotes here because they're not really experts. They're fake experts because they pontificate about very confident claims about what's going to happen. Because remember, Russia was supposed to overrun Ukraine in a matter of weeks. So that didn't happen. And then, oh, they're going to wear down Ukraine. Well, that didn't happen. And then there's been a back and forth uh, uh, between them. And like for you and I as economists, when people say, what's the stock market going to do? And we say, well, I don't know what it's going to do because that's not what we don't have an oracle. Uh, neither do they. So why, why does this matter? The bar has to be very high because for, for two reasons. Number one, there's no clear sorting mechanism for picking those things, which is why if you listen to people, they employ terminology like the public good. I don't mean the economic sense. I mean, just saying usually it means things they want government to do or they'll use the terminology that's not in the national interest. And if you actually focus on what they what they're saying, it's just again, they don't like it. They, they think the government should be doing something and not others. And, and, and here's the thing. If you say, well, people are suffering in and pick a society. The problem is people are suffering in every society. So very quickly, you can use that to justify any intervention you want. And people have, by the way, this was the colonizers. So you go back and, and look at uh, uh, King Leopold II, right, in Belgium with, with the Congo. He didn't go and say, I want to I chop people's arms off and get rubber. He said humanitarian intervention. And then what happens? He's chopping people's arms off to get to, 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 to expropriate the, the rubber and, and turn people into slaves. I'm not saying that that's going to happen under any every situation. But you, you, in order to make that the argument, and it's, it's, I think it's very easy for people who, who want to push back on the position I'm taking to do so because they can point out concrete things or concrete either past, past episodes or current episodes. Of, of bad things and then say, well, how would you handle that? And I can either respond by saying, no, you're right. We'll intervene. We should intervene or say, I don't know. And the, the, the thing, the problem is, is oftentimes those, those thought experiments smuggle in the assumption that government's going to do what they want it to do. Government's going to, 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 to actually stop it. So Hitler, okay. What about Stalin? Uh, you know, so so you you can it, it's like the foreign aid debates. You can end up very quickly just getting into a kind of a war where you're picking, cherry picking things that, that that support your case. Because the other thing, which I'm very comfortable saying, is it's not that foreign interventions 
can never generate benefits. Of course they generate benefits. And so if you do any intervention enough, any type of intervention, some people are going to be made better off and some good stuff is going to happen. But that is not the economic question. And that is not also the stated end of liberal empire. It's not like we're going to intervene around the world and every once in a while some good stuff will happen. It is stronger claims about the systematic provision of certain goods, of certain values, and so on. So then the question always becomes one of pattern predictions. How confident are you, given the industrial organization of the empire apparatus, given the the insights of economics, that systematically we're going to tend to get good outcomes? Uh, and we can never answer that with with certainty, but I, I think uh, to my way of thinking, we can go a long way in, in identifying some of the expected tendencies. So um, in the uh, in these discussions, um, you'll often uh, hear uh, people, you know, like Mises say liberalism has nothing to do with anarchism uh, and then proceed to somehow discuss how you're going to constrain the night watchman state. Uh, in more modern language, Francis Fukuyama has given us this, you know, uh, four quadrant, you know, depiction in which you have on the vertical axis, uh, strong uh, to weak states, and on the horizontal axis, small to big states. And then the secret Goldilocks position is to somehow be in the strong minimal state, right? Um, and that that's going to give us like what Mises or Buchanan or uh, anyone say they you know might call it muscular liberalism uh, at some level. In your readings of these various different liberal figures from Adam Smith onward, with respect to empire, uh, you know what figures most disappointed you? in their willingness to cave on the principle and what figures most stuck to the principles uh, in, in against empire over that period of time? Yeah. So that, it's a, that's an interesting question to think about. And I think one of the, first of all, let me say this, when you start looking historically at liberals, so I'm talking now back into the 1800s, there's significant variation in the positions they hold, both in their conceptual positions, but also in the practical policies they support in concrete cases. And so, you know, if I had to highlight kind of two of each, on the on the disappointing side, John Stuart Mill is, is disappointing. He, he was a fan of, um, of colonizing countries in the name of civil, civilizing them. So it was very similar to, to, to what you were saying earlier. Uh, and, and of course, he wanted the British to be the benevolent despot that did the civilizing. And so he, he, among others, not not just the British, but 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 the enlightened, developed countries, and so he justified British intervention in India. He talked about the French in in um, Algeria, and he thought that certain groups of people were unable to engage in self governance and needed to be civilized. He also had an economic theory where access to those new markets would allow um, population growth. Uh, and and the, and the shifting of population from from um, Britain and elsewhere to those colonies, as well as um, capital investments, and and so he viewed it as an economic benefit as well. The other person that's quite bad on this stuff is Tocqueville. Uh, uh, Tocqueville uh, supported French colonization of Algeria, British colonization of India, British intervention in China, uh, and uh, uh, again, it was civilizing. Uh, he viewed it as uh, as a means of um, Reinforcing national pride, 
So as a means of kind of enforcing imperialism, uh, uh, patriotism. Uh, and uh, uh, so you see this inconsistency with them, or at least you can see it as a potential. They saw it as consistent, I think, um, because I think they thought that many of the things they were talking about in other contexts didn't apply to those other societies because of their yeah, like stage Mill's of development. That, like Mill saying that uh, some people aren't ready for liberty yet. Until yes, exactly. We, until we yeah. cultivate them, then yeah. The, the good people, and I, I'm leaving aside, you know, some of the, the, the more recent ones that, that we talk about, but Herbert Spencer is very good. Um, um, Spencer talked about the, the connection between um, militarism and imperialism. So you can't have imperialism without militarism, both abroad and at home. Um, he talks about subordination, how when you adopt mil, milita- militaristic type practices, you're going to have subordination both domestically and internationally because you're centralizing massive amounts of control of, of, of force. And that is going to centralize things domestically as well as uh, interna- internationally. Um, it, it, domestically, he talks about regimentation, how it's very Lavoie-like actually, now that I think about it, how, how it's, it's not just militarization in terms of tanks driving down the street, but the very means of organization where it's very hierarchical and, and regimented. And, and that gets imposed in different areas of society, not just in the military, but in the economy and so on. And, and he thought that uh, Spencer, this is thought that imperialism fostered slavery. Um, uh, and again, it, whether he means outright slavery or free citizens becoming uh, under the under the guise of, of the centralized uh, power of the state, uh, reduced domestic and, and international liberty. Uh, the other person I'll highlight on the good side is William Graham Sumner. He was he was very good as well. And um, he said, look, there's there's benefits and costs of the war, uh, and uh, uh, and I recognize that. But he was very concerned that empire, uh, and he's talking a lot about the Spanish American War. That's that was his his focus. Um, so again, we're talking here late late eighteen hundreds, and and he had the the famous paper, the conquest of uh, the United uh, was well, a conquest of of Spain by the United States, I think it was, and. Um, he says, look, this is going to have uh, 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 these long-term devastating effects, not just economic effects, but on the very fabric of society, the ability of people to resolve things peacefully. Uh, and uh, uh, he's very pragmatic. He recognizes that there's going to be a mix of conflict and peace in the world. So he's not some utopian like we can all hug it out and get peace. But his concern is that imperialism and empire exasperates the, the conflict aspects while uh, kind of harming the, the the peaceful aspects of life. And so those are the kind of the four thinkers, two in each category that I would point to. Yeah, that's great. Um, in more modern times, uh, let's talk about some other uh, uh, important thinkers that maybe some of the listeners to the Hayek podcast might not be as familiar with. Now, the first one is Gene Sharp. Now, many libertarians already know about Gene Sharp because of you know, his nonviolence and the connection with Vietnam and, and whatnot. Um, but, you know, more modern discussions. But the other person is the Boldings, uh, both uh, Elisa and, and, and Kenneth Bolding, um, who were major uh, figures in peace and the development of the whole field of conflict uh, economics and, and or conflict resolution. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about the contributions of Sharp and the Boldings, and how that you see appropriating them into the your own paradigm uh, makes sense and, and whatnot? 
Yeah, sure. So let me let me go in reverse order and do the boldings first, and then because I think that ties in nicely with sharp, and and, and I, I leverage the boldings to throughout the book, especially Kenneth Balding. And, and so Kenneth Balding, as you all know, um, was was a, an economist who published just such a, a an amazingly wide range of things. I mean, it's it's crazy to think about. Um, you know, microeconomics, macroeconomics, things like on um, you know space and the environment and conflict and just so many different things. It's impossible to to cover them all. But but he is one, considered one of kind of the founding fathers of conflict economics. Uh, and he, he has several books on this book, but one that you know influenced me a, a great deal is uh, it's called the Stable Piece, which comes out in in the either nineteen seventy eight or nineteen seventy nine. It's a very thin kind of monograph almost. But I think it captures a lot of the salient features of things we want to to think about. And one of the things I really like that he points out in there is that conflict is not everywhere, but it is a ubiquitous part of life. Conflict isn't violence, by the way. Conflict is when you have a, a, a your interests aren't aligned. So peace for him, or 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 or, or non conflict, I should say. If we break down human action into two categories. Non-conflict is when there's a harmony of interests, so there's no, no, no butting of heads. Conflict is when there's a butting of heads. And then he says, look, there's two ways to resolve conflict situations. You can resort to violence or you can resort to peace. And neither of those are a foregone given, meaning, meaning we, we have control over it, how we respond. And then he breaks down the peace and violence solutions into two categories. And he says, look, what divides these things is what he calls the taboo line. The taboo line is, is the collection of norms and formal rules that delineate what's acceptable behavior. And so, you know, he has these, he's a, he's a very funny, he's a very casual writer in, in terms of like being engaging. So I, I like reading it too. It's not, and because uh, he dictated a lot of this stuff too. And then his secretaries typed it up. But, you know, he has these examples and I'll say like, if I'm at a dinner party and I get into an argument with someone, you know, I don't think about spitting in their face. Like I could do that, but I don't do it. Do I do that? If I, do I not do that because I'm worried about the police? He says, no, because that's not how you behave towards other human beings. Now, where did that come from? Who knows? It's some norm, you know, there, and, and that's part of the taboo line. What he's trying to get us to think about is in our daily lives, we navigate conflict situations constantly. And in some cases, those things spill over to violence, but oftentimes they don't. And we tend to take those peaceful resolution, uh, situations of peaceful resolution for granted. And so that's where he comes in. He's also great. And I talk about him in the book on, on uh, you know, the war economy. So he is very harsh about the war economy. And, um, you know, he talks about it being a, a, a cancer on American society and the dynamism of markets. So he sees it as being a, a very parasitic uh, force on, on the dynamism of markets and, and private life. Um, but anyway, uh, Elise Bowling, his wife, taught at Dartmouth. She was a sociologist. And interestingly, and it's great to read them together. So they came to George Mason, which you know, and they gave this joint talk. And it's on YouTube, actually. And it's, it's interesting because they wrote a joint paper. So imagine like a 25-page paper. And then they stopped like in the middle and just switch. So it's like he wrote the first 12 pages and then she just starts writing. And then during the talk, when they're giving it, 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 he starts and just like sits down and she stands up and starts going. So it's kind of cool. But they're taking like kind of jabs at each other, like like loving jabs. But, you know, she re- she was very critical of rational choice theory in the economic sense. And and, and I, I my reading 
is of the kind of standard homo economicus, the strong form of rationalism. I think you can, this is me reading into her, but I think you can read in a, a, an ecological type of rationality, a different type, but that, that's beyond what we're talking about today. But what I like about her is she has this book called Cultures of Peace, where she says, look, in every single society, even the most violent societies, um, there, there's people get along. Even if you are just you and your neighbors and you have to live under the most authoritarian regime where there's people con committing violence all around you, you have norms, you cooperate with people. And in, to her way of thinking, this is a very optimistic, uh, offers an optimistic way to, to understand things, both for understanding them, but also for the potential for the future. Because she says, look, it's not like people, we, we tend to break societies into developed peaceful societies and poor violent societies. And she says it's never that simple. And in order to get peace in those in those situations where there's broader violence, we need to leverage, this is the really cool stuff about kind of the bottom up solutions. We need to leverage the skills that people on the ground have about navigating peace. So instead of imposing it from outside or thinking that you can get a military force to go in and create peace, what we really need to do is leverage that. Some of those are, are observable, some are not. But the other thing she does, she has a, a great book, I think it's called The Underside of History, where she points out the role of women throughout human history as being peacemakers, but they're kind of excluded from the conversation. They're excluded from the history books. They are excluded from many even economic discussions because they're at home most of the time. So they're not viewed as being standard productive in the, in the standard kind of very narrow sense of the term. So she also views women and children too, as having a key role in, in peace uh, formation. She says, look, kids hit each other, but if you watch kids on a playground, uh, oftentimes, so they get into fights, but they figure stuff out. They, they figure stuff out. And so to her way of thinking, there's all these local resources that can be leveraged to, to, to find peace. And I, I think that's a really fascinating part of this too. Um, Gene Sharp is, as you mentioned, his, his big thing is nonviolence. He started studying this as a master's student, and I think he did his PhD at Oxford. He wrote his dissertation on nonviolence. He was heavily influenced by Gandhi. Uh, and then he spent his career at uh, UMass Dartmouth. Uh, and he, he academically, people knew him, but he wasn't a, a super famous academic. What he was more famous for was people in, in kind of not peace movements per se, but just in, in collective action situations, because it wasn't always, sometimes it was revolutionary not a violent revolution, but revolutionary. And Politics of Nonviolent Action, which is his three-volume book, um, which was published in 1973, which came out of his dissertation. That's his famous book. And what he points out is that people, there's a couple of things he points out. Number one, all governments devise their power from citizens, even authoritarian governments. If, if enough people don't subscribe to that government being in charge, the government cannot sustain. And that's a pretty powerful point unto itself because it, it, it kind of flips over the way people tend to view those regimes, which is government controls things and the people are subservient to them. And on many margins, they are, but only because enough people allow the government to do that. And he then talks about, once you recognize this, the power that people have to push back against brutality against threats to their security. This is going to feed into our, our broader discussion about the provision of security and defense. That can be against internal threats, governments, other actors, or external threats. And so what Sharp says is, look, if you live under a government that is mistreating you, 
or if there's an external threat, the likelihood of ordinary people being able to push back in terms of violence is basically zero. You'll just get crushed. That doesn't mean you're helpless. If you can coordinate with enough people, you can do things which weaken the authority of government. And those can be proactive things, things like protests, things like boycotts, or they can be um, acts of, 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 of not doing things, things of omission is what he calls them, I believe. And that can be like moving slowly in production or uh, not showing up to, 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 to your job or doing things which slow the operation and the ability of, of the threat to do what they need to do. And so he spent his career thinking about that. Now, now for Sharp, he's, he's very clear about a couple of things. Number one, he is not a pacifist. So he, 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 he is very careful about this. And he says, look, pacifism is an ethical position. I am talking about a practical weapon. He views nonviolence as a tool to push back against oppression. It's a proactive tool to fight back. So you're proactively fighting a force. You're not, you're not using violence, but it's a method to do that. Um, and so that's number one. The other thing I just want to mention is he documents all these cases where nonviolence exists, but in practice, you know, like a lot of things in the world, it gets messy, right? So you, you, you have a mix of violence and nonviolence. Um, there's questions about what role does the backstop of violence or potential violence on the part of private people play in nonviolent things. And so it, again, it opens up a fascinating set of questions, but that's, that's the gist of it. I have a question for you just on that last thing, because I think both Thoreau in civil disobedience and then Gandhi in the, uh, you know, independence movement, um, they're making a strategic position too, right? I mean, that's, it's strategic rather than the idea that they are necessarily like trying to make a, a pacifistic argument. They're making a strategic argument. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's right. And that's, and that's what Sharp is leveraging. So it's this idea of this is part of a broader strategical toolkit as compared to an ethical position. Those things might collapse together in some cases, but they don't have to. And so um, I think that's important to, to point out. So I, I want to ask or finish with a discussion <clears throat> following up a little bit on what you were talking about with cultures and an emphasis on the plural there, cultures of peace. Um, so the way I like to think about this, um, and I, I don't know if, if it's exactly the way that, that you think about it, but um, is that, uh, you know, Kant gave us uh, two very strong principles. One of them is, is that we should strive for a world in which there's strangers nowhere in the world. That's sort of the cosmopolitan project. So strangers nowhere in the world. In, in, in your book, you quote Balding, um, who again, you know, has a wonderful way of putting, he, he refers to it, I think, as um, peaceful international friendships or something like that. We wanna, we wanna you know, have, have these friendships or whatever. Um, so, okay, strangers nowhere in the world. And then the second principle being perpetual peace, right? So Kant's essay on perpetual peace. And what liberalism, cosmopolitan liberalism is about is trying to operationalize those two principles in a stable way so that it can be an equilibrium kind of thing. And one of the things that we found is that uh, it's not so easy to stay, have that be a stable equilibrium whenever you have a monocentric, uh, you know, seem like a state position as opposed to seem like a citizen. And so I think that that relates to your cultures of peace, or maybe I'm, I'm blending too many ideas. 
But perhaps maybe, you know, you could talk about that and then its relationship to polycentric society as maybe found in the work of the Ostroms or even more radically found in the work of like Chandran Kukathos in the liberal archipelago and how you see that as connected to your overall project. Right. So these are great points. and I'll try my best to touch upon them and link them together. So where, where I end up with the book is, so I have the kind of di- what I call the diagnostic part of the book. These are the, these are the realities of empire. This is how it operates. Whether you subscribe to that still after reading that or not as an effective tool, I'll leave to the, to the reader. But of course, I, I, at the concluding chapter is called Rethinking Empire. And given my skepticism, where does that leave us? Well, one, the standard kind of thing is, well, we just need smarter empire. So it, it, it's a little less here, a little more there, uh, you know, cut this, reallocate resources there. I, I'm skeptical of this as a sustainable path out precisely because of the, the, the things I've identified earlier in the book, which is given the, the nature uh, and the industrial organization of the entity itself, there's always going to be pushed beyond that. And it doesn't mean you can't have ebbs and flows. I can imagine a situation where there's less empire stuff, activities but I, I don't think that's sustainable. Uh, I don't think it's sustainable through time. So then where does that leave us? Does that just leave us in a, oh, well, I don't think so. I think that, again, the, many of the thinkers that we value for contributing to liberalism don't do full justice to their own ideas, precisely because they don't apply it to the provision of security against threats. And I think doing that opens up a whole set of interesting analytical questions and, and, and a research program, uh, what, what I, I think of as a positive program or, or science of peace, the study of, of, of peace. And first of all, it, it doesn't reject that conflict exists. That's which I mentioned earlier. Hi, uh, a bolding in the, in the stable peace. He used the term stable to mean something in particular. It's not that you never get violence, but stable peace, the way he defines it, is a peace where the probability of relying on violence to, to resolve conflict is relatively small. And it's relatively small such that people don't think of it kind of instantaneously as, as the means to resolving conflict. Think about the world now. People say the world word Russia or China. It's like, oh, the, the American government must do X. And usually it, it requires some form of force. So, so force is at the forefront instead of far in the background. And that's what Boulding's trying to push us on and think about. And so then you recognize the conflict's ubiquitous. Well, how are you going to deal, deal with it? And the first thing is to think about the fact that we live in a, a multipolar world. We, we, you know, in, the, in the wake of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union, many people think about a unipolar world. The, it's the U.S., the U.S., the U.S. That's the, that's the idea of US, uh, the U.S. hegemon running the world. But if you take a more, again, if we move away from the collectivist, highly aggregated view and just think about society, we already recognize that we live in a multipolar world. There's, there's, there's millions upon millions of people. And on a daily basis, we interact with hundreds, if not thousands of them. And we navigate that, 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 those realities. And so we got to look for mechanisms of cooperation. Polycentric, a polycentric structure, one of the, the many benefits is that it allows us to come up with very localized solutions to dealing with navigating conflict and, and, and uh, uh, cooperation. That doesn't mean it's always going to work, but I think that's important because even within a country, 
you know, take the United States. What works to resolve conflict in my house won't necessarily work to what resolve conflict in your house. What allows people to resolve conflict in Northern Virginia won't necessarily allow it to work in, in, in Southern Virginia. And once you recognize that and start extrapolating from there, you realize that kind of the one size fits all hegemonic view of this has severe limitations because it's necessarily going to impose a very limited view of what peace is on the entire world. Again, it's assumed away when you just say like, yeah, the empire will provide global public goods. So that assumes away all the hard questions because it's like, yeah, good stuff's going to happen. But, you know, if you think about it, it depends on how you count sovereign states, but there's about 195 sovereign states in the world. So if we're just talking about things at the, at the level of the state and you have representatives from each of those states, that's how many people, a couple thousand people representing the entire globe. There's no way that group of people is representing the interests of all the people around the world. But those people can represent their own interests and do. So we want to think about cooperation in a multipolar world. We want to think about perceptions or what elsewhere Bolden called the image. Our, the image for Bolden is how we perceive the world. It's a very Hayekian in, in the facts of the social sciences type view of things. Right? It's, the, it's the individual subjective perception with their relation with others at all different levels. The family, your church, the, the nation internationally. So what does that mean? Well, one of the really important things, I think, is to cultivate a certain image uh, uh, of your relationship with others. And when you foster this image of us against them, the world is a zero-sum situation, it elevates violence because other people get stuff if I don't get it. So I have to beat them to the punch. The minute you have that framework, the scope for cooperation in situations of conflict is severely narrowed because you're pushing off the table a whole bunch of voluntary uh, and peaceful solutions. The other really Tocquevillian and Ostrom point here, especially Vincent Ostrom, I think, is this idea of habits of peacemaking. So, so one way to, again, the, the standard view is like the world is one of anarchy internationally. We need this Leviathan. The Leviathan is, is, is either one or two big governments and they provide order. That completely sucks out, if you will, the ability of diverse and creative individuals at different levels of social organization to do those things. And part of the problem, because people point to and say like, see, it doesn't exist there, but that doesn't have to be the case. I mean, it's possible the counterfactual is a case where people would figure things out because they had to go back to thinking about children on the playground. And, but, but that requires a cultivation of those skills. That's the habits of peacemaking. This is why it's a Tocquevillian, Vincent Ostrom type point. These things are not necessarily innate to people. They are learned and cultivated through time, but people have to be given the space to, to do that. And so instead of having a very macro global level of, of peace and peacemaking, one of the things I'm pushing for in the conclusion of the book, when I talk about polycentric uh, uh, peace and polycentric security, are, are more micro level interactions. Some of those micro level interactions have nothing at all to do with the international space, but some of them will. What they will look like exactly, I don't know. I, I don't know what they will look like and that I can't know what they can look like. And so if someone pushes me and says, well, tell me specifically how this will look or that, I, I, I unfortunately can't answer them. But the idea that control is associated with order, meaning the only way to have order is to have a single entity controlling everything, I think flies in the face of everything we know about complex systems and spontaneous orders. Of course, Bolding talks about this, but before him, Hyatt did, and before him, Hume, 
and the other uh, Enlightenment thinkers didn't. So what happens when we apply that logic to the international space? Um, again, that's a, a fascinating set of questions. Uh, one last question. Uh, it, it's not a positive one to end on. It's actually kind of a, a puzzling one, which is uh, related to what you were just saying. So economists can imagine, so free market economists, let's say, uh, liberals, uh, can imagine all kinds of ways in which entrepreneurs come up with solutions to the most difficult problems that we face. You know, uh, so, oh, climate change is happening. Oh, but the entrepreneur will come up with new technologies, new adaptive strategies, things like that. But they tend to be very limited in their ability to envision a world in which you have a solution to the defense problem, which invokes this kind of creativity and cleverness of individuals on the ground. What do you think is the impediment to utilizing the imagination to think about a world of radical decentralization generating a stable peace, as opposed to radical decentralization solving some other big, hairy externality problem or whatever that we may put in the front of it? Why, why one and not the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure I know specifically why. You, we, can, we can hypothesize why they might. Part of it might be training of economists. And so, of course, contemporary economists are trained in the Samuelsonian tradition, re really the Musgrave Samuelsonian tradition. And from that standpoint, as you put it earlier, national defense is the, is the textbook public good. And I think that many economists use that as the default and don't even think twice about it. And, and, and even, by the way, I should say the Ostroms do this. When they have their quadrants, their, their matrix, they have national defense in the, in the public good quadrant. Um, Buchanan talks about this um, in the same kind of, of, of language. And so that could be part of it. The other part of it might be an empirical component, which is you look around the world and you see big states and you know prosperity and they say, okay, you need a, a big state. Part of, so I, th I think it's a, perhaps a mix of those. There might be other, other things as well. But some of them, I think, do realize it, by the way. And what do I mean by that? Take Buchanan, for instance. Buchanan is a is a limited government person. He thinks the the productive state. So you need to you, the government needs to protect rights and then provide public goods. And I think he would include defense among that. But he also realizes that people that live under that government need mechanisms to protect them against potential abuses of government because he he's he understands the challenge. He understands that this is the whole. The what is it? The the fox in the hen house or the wolf in the the, the fox? Yeah, the, don't let the fox guard the hen house. He understands the fox can bite you. So in some in some interesting roundabout way, the constitutional project is to precisely recognize that when you empower the state, it be, it, it can protect you from external threats, but it becomes an immediate threat to you. So then you it it, it, cha it shifts the security challenge, which is now I don't have to worry about assuming government does what it's supposed to do. I don't have to worry about the foreign threat, but now I got to worry about the domestic threat. Then that comes to how confident are you in the operation of, of a constitution to protect you? Irregardless of where one comes down on that, it still is you need some kind of mechanism to protect yourself from that. Um, but again, I, I view it as an, an, an interesting... Ostrom might be the best, Eleanor Ostrom, on this because, precisely because she, she appreciates um, the ability of people to navigate those challenges. And also she, she is a direct critic of those collective choice type, what she calls straitjackets, the models where it's like, you know, prisoner's dilemma, you're stuck, or Olson's logic of collective action, you're stuck, or tragedy of the commons, 
you're stuck. And she opens up the possibility for those things. Now, she doesn't talk about security and defense per se, but that's what the interesting research program is, I think. Well, Chris, thank you very much. And congratulations on this new book, uh, In Search of Monsters to Destroy by Chris Coyne, published by the Independent Institute 2022. Today is actually the release date the official release date, I believe, of the book. Is that correct? That's um, right. And so I'm very excited to be able to talk to you about it and uh, just so uh, impressed with the body of research that you've uh, been able to put together and looking forward to uh, continuing reading and learning from you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.